previously on There There. And when I first saw my other, I thought that maybe this was him. That mental projection became tangible somehow. But I knew this other me did not exist. As much as it seemed like reality in my head, I was always able to come down, come back to reality. The blur always subsided and I can go on with life. And I knew these two workings were not related. My alternate reality was, is not related to the events over the past few days. You ask why? I would. But it's really an easy answer. I was always a spectator before. I could simultaneously acknowledge my dual roles as spectator and actor. I use the word actor not in the thespian sense, but in the sense that I was acting, I was doing, and therefore not passive. In the events over the past few days, I have not been a spectator. I don't feel safe, and I believe harm will come to me if I do not be an active participant. Can my mind be so compromised that I have blended reality and fantasy? I took the city in my eyes, taking deep breaths. I do not accept what has happened. I may not be able to explain it, but that doesn't mean that it has actually happened. And so I closed my eyes tightly. This did not happen. There is no rational explanation, therefore it could not have happened. It did not happen. When I opened my eyes, the city looked different. It looked calm and serene, and so I made my way back into my apartment to get ready for another honest day's work. I heard a horn sound from the port. A ship was leaving. It was a long sound filled with bass that shook the air. When I reached the handle for the doorknob, I heard the second horn, and this time it was louder and longer. It called to me, so I let go and walked back to the place I had just stood. The cargo freighter was leaving. Noah's freighter was leaving, probably on its way down the coast to deliver some imports. And so I turned around to go back to my apartment, and that is when I heard your voice. Where are you going? I'll be back. What did you think I was done with you? You're listening to There There, Episode 4, What Are We Here For? I heard the voice and it was as clear as the skies were throughout the city, more so, and as much as I tried to dismiss it, it was there. He was there, and that meant you were also there. And as I looked across the city to the port, I could see that the cargo ship was indeed leaving. It was no hallucination. It was leaving. But was Noah really on it? That was a real question, right? If the voices were real, then the cargo ship that was leaving had Noah aboard it, and he would be back for me. Which did two things. One, it scared me. He would be back, and that meant he would be back for me. But two, and more importantly, it meant that I was safe, at least for now. I could rest without worrying about anyone trying to get me. What did he want with me, and when would he be back to take it? And I had to find out. I had to go down to the dock and see what was there, even if he wasn't, especially if he wasn't. I returned to my apartment and showered. When the warm water hit me, it soothed my skin to the depths of my soul. And after I put on clean clothes, I grabbed my wallet from the dresser, and there they were, in a straight line, in order of attainment. The red and black is a friend of Jack's screwdriver. This is mine. I owned it, and it only became of importance after I used it to murder my other, if indeed that happened. Then there was a sliver of the broken mirror. This I gathered after retracing my steps with my encounter with my other. Then there was a snail shell. Again, I grabbed this from his apartment, but I wasn't sure if it was his or mine since I had one exactly like it. 
have to make sure later to see if I still had mine, which would make two. Help me. And when I heard the voice, I thought better of it. I'd better do it now rather than later, so I decided to go to my closet and rifle through my bins. At times I went through fits of cleanliness but never really knew how to organize, so I would purchase a storage bin and just stuff things in it until it was full and then stored in the closet. It made me feel that it was organized, but that's not really true. It just meant that I took my disorganization and boxed it and placed it in the closet so that the closet had storage bins of disorganization. And so I went to the closet and pulled the first bin. Bin 1 had nothing but obsolete technology, remotes and chargers that I no longer had the devices for. Useless, so I left it out because I thought I should go through it and get rid of the things that no longer had any use. I grabbed the second bin. Let's call this bin 2 of 7. Bin 2 had things like pens and pencils of places I had been. There was one from the Museum of Modern Art, one from the Museum, one from the National Institute of Music. There were also some pens, paper clips, and paperweights. More like random office stuff. Time for bin 3. Bin 3 had some photos and keepsakes. I grabbed one photo. It was a Polaroid of my grandmother and me, probably when I graduated from elementary school. There was another one of my mom and my grandmother. They were together in the same frame, but as physically distant as they could possibly be for something that was supposed to be an intimate moment. That was her and her mother. That was me and her. And I realized that it was a generational thing. It must have been like that for them, and so it was for us. And I can see a vision of my mother ripped from her baby at the moment of birth so that she couldn't hold her newborn. And the baby was pulled so quickly that they couldn't even cut the umbilical cord. They just pulled and pulled so violently that the cord ripped. And she must have tried to hold on to that cord so that they were playing tug of war, but she lost. And so she became sad at first and cried herself to sleep. And when she awoke, she was still sad. And day after day, she was sad until one day the overwhelming sadness and grief turned into something else. It turned into anger. And her anger became her daughter's anger, and her daughter's, and her daughter's, until there was nothing left but anger that was encoded into our DNA through generations and generations of repeated actions and emotions. And that was the genealogy of our dysfunction. After I looked at a stack of photos, there it was, the snail shell. It was here in my hand, which meant that the other one had to be his. Was this proof of life? I took my shell and walked over to the dresser to compare the two. They were identical, with the exception of an almost imperceptible crack perpendicular to the spiral line. But beyond that, they were the same, which is why I thought they were the same. And next in line of my recent collectibles was a bracelet. I looked at it more closely this time. What I initially thought were two hearts were more like giraffe necks, intertwining several times which looked like they were forming two hearts with their necks. I turned over the piece to see the inscription that I hadn't had a chance to read. Just the two of us. I placed the bracelet back into the straight, neat line on my dresser in the order in which they were obtained. Before leaving my room, I thought about taking the red and black screwdriver but thought better of it, and so I left my apartment. There was clarity in my thoughts this morning. The brisk air clung to my face, keeping me alert. The morning traffic was loud but not overwhelming, and I felt calmer than I had in the last few days. I'm not sure why. I was no closer in determining whether he was in my head or not. The last time I heard him, he was angry with me. I walked past the coffee shop and decided that it probably wasn't a good idea to have caffeine this morning. I didn't want it to refuel my mind so that it could form rampant thoughts about the next catastrophic event and possibly the end of the world. And so I continued to walk down the street. I passed the alleyway and looked inside. It was quiet and empty. I walked past the dollar store that I had ducked into. People were in there making their purchases as part of their normal routine. I continued to walk block after block until the port was just a few blocks away. When I arrived, it was larger than it appeared from afar. What I could not see from my rooftop was the hustle and bustle. 
There were so many people coming and going, so many cars entering and exiting, the boats departing and arriving, the trucks taking and leaving shipments, non-stop. The level of activity was a direct contrast to the still-life point of view from the rooftop. It was all so busy, but that overwhelming feeling didn't sink in like it had over the past week. Everything and everyone had a purpose. The people were there to put things on the ships and take things off the ships. And then other people placed them on trucks, and other people drove those trucks away from the docks. And still, those people drove the trucks to warehouses and storefronts for other people to unload and sell so that other people could purchase. Everything and everyone had a purpose, and so I stood and watched. I watched the first car that passed by, and I stayed with him. He was an older gentleman, probably in his late 50s. His hair was too long for his age and was thinning badly in the front. When he got out of his truck, he placed a hat over his head, presumably to hide the thinness. With the hat, he tried to move in confidence. He grabbed the backpack and slung a strap over his right shoulder, and the momentum caused his knees to buckle slightly. When he regained his balance, he reached back into the truck and grabbed the lunch bag that had our sports logo on it, an eagle. I watched him as he left his truck and made his way, and before long, someone joined him, presumably a co-worker, and then they were joined by another, and then another, and they made their way collectively. The four of them moved together toward a common destination, and so I followed and they made their way to an entryway arch of concrete. When I looked above, it read 29. The older guy spoke, and another laughed heartily. When they reached the window, they flashed their badges and made their way. But when the old one took a step, he stopped, and took a few steps back. He looked at the ground, and for a moment I thought that he was looking for something he had dropped. Unfortunately, that was not the case as he fell. His arms, unable to cushion the blow, his head fell first to the ground, and his body began to convulse briefly before stopping. I ran to him. I relentlessly ran to him, and even though his co-workers gathered around him, I pushed my way through. And he lay there motionless. One of his co-workers pulled out his phone and was on the line with 911. Does anyone know CPR? I heard someone say. I fell down, placing myself over to his side, and looked at him. Help me. A voice whispered, but his mouth did not move. I had done CPR training for the past six years as part of our emergency response team. A, B, C. Airway breath compression. Even though breath has fallen out of fashion due to communicable diseases or the fallacies of transmission that accompany them. I placed my finger in his mouth and moved it around to check his airway. I assumed there was nothing there. I had seen him since he had left his truck and I didn't notice him placing anything in his mouth. Then I took a deep breath and proceeded to place my lips against his and while holding his nose closed, I blew my breath full of life into his body, hoping to keep him close to me, hoping to keep him close to life. I saw his lungs fill with my life as his chest moved up. And when I was done, I placed one of my hands above the other, clasped over his chest directly between his nipples, and pushed down steadily, rapidly, not bending my elbows. It's not like that in the movies. You're supposed to keep your elbows straight during the process. It provides stability and continuity. No randomness about how much of a bend to the elbow. Keep it straight all the time and push down fast. People don't realize how fast the heart pumps blood through the body, beyond anything we could imagine. It's not one, two, three, four. It's more like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. It's fast, way faster than we think in our mind. And if we haven't had training, we would be denying the body and more importantly, the brain of much needed blood. And the brain needs blood and oxygen to survive. And the poor old bastard was having problems with that. So I tried to help him, but I knew better. I did the reading, especially when I first did the training. Just do a quick search on the internet on how effective CPR is, and you'll see the dismal results. You'll see what I saw. Just look at the AHA report, especially as it pertains to the U.S. 
I may as well just left him there. He had no chance, but it didn't matter. I still have to try. But the grim truth of the matter is that less than 15% survive. That means that if 100 people had a cardiac arrest in front of you, only 15 would survive. It would mean 85 people would die in front of you, and there would be nothing you can do. No matter how hard you tried, they would die. This had nothing to do with emotion and everything to do with objective science. Fact. This ultimately meant that CPR was useless, at least from a statistical standpoint. And yet here I was, trying so desperately to make this man part of that less than 15%. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. I'm not sure how long I kept this up. You have to realize something that contributes to the less than 15% survival rate. Your heart has stopped for a reason. You have stopped for a reason, whether it's genetic or diet or lack of exercise or age, or just that you're so damn tired all the time. It's usually for some reason or other. I'll leave it up to you to ascribe medical or religious reasons. But nevertheless, your heart stops, and based on the statistics, it does not want to start again. And so for whatever reason you attribute to it, it stops. And so when you perform CPR, you are working against the body's reasoning for stopping, and it is stubborn, stubborn to the tune of 85%. So it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Maybe it's God's fault, if you believe he governs everything. So I continued to perform the compressions because I thought that maybe, just maybe, he would be in the under 15% of people who survive cardiac arrest. I heard the sirens after a few moments, and then a fire engine approached, and the men got out. The first man that stood over him looked at his watch. I thought I heard him say something about lunch. He took one hand and arrhythmically began compressions. I tried to count in my head to keep up, but there was no count that matched his movements. He doesn't care. It's off. He's focused on lunch as he laughs with his co-worker. I take out my phone and look at the time. It's been approximately six minutes since he fell down. He's part of the 85% as he always was. I don't think he moved from the 85% to the less than 15%. It's not fluid like that. It's predetermined once your heart stops. It's made a decision and no amount of convincing can change its mind. No amount of pumping and breathing of your own life into it matters. It's made up its mind. And the paramedic knew this. You can tell by the care he took. And when the ambulance showed up, the first one out moved toward him. He checked his watch before he went to the back of the ambulance. He came back with the gurney and loaded him into the back of the ambulance. There was nothing urgent to their movements or expressions until the man was loaded into the ambulance. It was then that I saw this. Once he was loaded and just before the door closed, I saw the driver look back toward the gurney, and that is when I saw it. He looked at him with an eerie familiarity, and when I looked at him and then back to the man on the gurney, I saw what he saw. They were the same, mirror images of one another, like me and my other. They were their others, and the door closed with the intimacy of that knowledge, and they sped off even more so because of this knowledge. The ambulance skidded off well before the sirens went off. And I was left here to understand what had just happened and my part in it. Isn't that the selfishness of man? To understand my part and totally disregard that poor man and what his outlook was and the outlook of his family. I mean, imagine what it must be like to have to make that phone call to his family. And you might easily disregard that because whoever is making that phone call must have made that phone call a hundred times already. But the receiver, the receiver... It might have been the first time he or she has received a phone call like that, and I was overwhelmed in my thoughts of that family, that family that never expected a phone call like that. Who can ever expect a phone call like that? And my eyes teared as I stood over a body that was no longer there. He was just here, and before he was here, he was walking here, and I saw him. He was alive. And I know I stood over asphalt devoid of life, and I heard the rumblings of his co-workers as they made their way back to work as a whistle blew.
I looked at the man's belongings that still lay on the ground. When someone approached me, he asked, Please tell me you're here for a job like everybody else. I nodded, and he threw me the man's backpack and his lunch bag. He led me to an office and gave me paperwork to fill out as I carried the man's gear. I took a pencil to the paper and filled out the information as quickly as I could, and when I was done, I handed the man the paperwork. He asked for my ID and made a photocopy. He looked over the paperwork and told me I could work the day, and if it worked out, I could come back tomorrow. 100 bucks a day minus a $20 a day union fee. He led me out of his office to a group of men. I was introduced to a man named Abe, and he asked me about my experience, and we both readily acknowledged that I was a novice that was more suited for manual labor. He assigned me to a man named Cass, and I was told to follow him wherever he went and do as he said, which was ironic since he talked very little. But I did as he did, and I shouted him for the day. He took a clipboard and gave me one as well. We walked from container to container, looking at the alphanumeric codes on the outside. I quickly learned from Cass that they are called intermodal containers, which refers to the different modes of transportation they can be used for. Ship, train, and truck without ever having to disturb the contents. There are two codes on the outside of the container. The first one was a container number, and the second one was the ISO code. We checked these codes to the logs that we had on the clipboards, and periodically Cass wanted to open one, so he motioned to me with his pen. He didn't talk much unless it was to explain something. Words were not wasted with him, and I don't even know if he knew my name. The door of the container was held in place by four bars that ran up and down the container's two doors. The bars each had a handle that, when turned, disengaged it from its footing. I took the two that were holding the right door in place and turned them and opened the door. Cass took a flashlight and briefly shone it on a few of the pallets and nodded. This meant that he was satisfied and I could close the door. We didn't do this on every container, and I tried to figure out if there was a pattern to his randomness without asking him. He didn't seem like the type of person to reveal his algorithm of selection anyway. At first, I didn't care, so I didn't keep track. I was still distraught about the man that had just died, and I wasn't even trying to figure out what I was doing here. But after our morning break, I decided to try to figure it out. I needed something to do, something to keep my mind off the man from this morning. I didn't even know his name, so I had to keep on referring to him as that man. After break, we opened the 5th, 12th, and 20th containers. I expected to open the 29th container, but we didn't. We opened the 32nd one. And after about an hour, I gave up. There was no seeming pattern. When I thought one emerged, he changed it up. Whether he was doing it consciously or not, I didn't know. When lunch came, I went to the locker that was issued to me, and I pulled out my lunch bag. The lunch bag. His lunch bag. And I went to sit by myself, away from my new co-workers. This was typical of me, in my other workplace. I always ate my lunch alone, either in my office or in my car. After spending so much time with people, running meetings, presenting, training, I was spent on people and being alone was the only thing I could do to recharge. I read that once. Introverts recharge by being alone. Extroverts recharge by being with others. But I think it went beyond that. I've been alone my whole life, and I'm not saddened by it. It just is. I make no opinion of it one way or the other, and so I ate my lunch alone, even when co-workers invited me. My boss once told me that I should go to lunch with them every now and then, for two reasons. One, to make connections, and it's always important to make connections. But two, and even more important, to let everyone know that I wasn't better than them, even if I thought I was better than them. I should break bread with them, periodically at least. Perception is always stronger than reality. And so I sat alone for today. Maybe I would sit down with my co-workers tomorrow, if there was a tomorrow, if I was allowed to come back, if I wanted to come back. 
Why would I want to come back? I had a job already, and it was a lot different than this. But so was this, and so I made a decision to come back tomorrow, if I was allowed to come back, if Cass and the boss would allow it. As I sat alone, I looked at the lunch bag. It was worn out, barely holding together. I struggled with the zipper before I opened it, revealing the contents. I took out a thermos first. I unscrewed the lid and smelled the warm contents. What I initially thought to be coffee was not. It was savory yet sweet, warm. The steam floated in the air as the hot air clashed with the cold air. I placed the rim of the thermos to my mouth and took a sip. It was chicken soup, but maybe the best chicken soup that I had ever tasted. Deep flavors of chicken, roasted carrots, onion, and garlic. But there was more. There was a slight heat, and when I took another sip, I bit into a chunk of jalapeno, the source of the heat. I emptied the contents of the thermos into my body and the warmth that was contained within flowed throughout until I was whole again. But oddly, the nourishment only left me hungrier and I reached into the bag and took out an object wrapped in foil. The foil was crumpled, likely from reusage, leaving small prisms of dull, meaningless reflections. I wrapped it, careful not to tear it, and there was a napkin wrapped around the sandwich. It was standard white bread with ham and cheese and a little mayo and mustard, the way I would have made it at home. I finished the sandwich without hesitance and I grabbed the napkin to wipe my face. As I lifted the napkin, there was a message scrawled on it. It bled blue ink through the layers slightly. It read, I'm sorry. I'm always sorry. I just hope you'll forgive me one more time. I love you, Dan. I always will even when I forget that I do, even when you forget that I do. I couldn't bear to wipe my face with this message, this confession, this vulnerability, so I took the napkin and carefully folded it and placed it back in the bag. Not having a napkin to use, I did what any eight-year-old would do. I used my sleeve. Next, I took the foil and began to smooth out the crinkles as much as possible before I folded the square three times. I limited myself to three folds for I didn't know if the worn-out foil could handle any more than that, and I gently placed it back in the bag. As I pulled on the rebellious zipper, I looked at the label. It read, If found, please return to Dan Juarez, and below that was his address and phone number. Small reward if found and returned. Small reward meaning my gratitude, it may be a beer on me. I smiled at this. I wish I could have met Dan and had a beer with him. I wish I had found this lunch bag under normal circumstances and was able to return it to him. Our meeting was barely a meeting and it was one-sided, but still it wouldn't do. The bag had to be returned. That was it. The rest of the afternoon was more the same, and I gave up trying to figure out Cass's pattern. When the day was over, the foreman asked me if I wanted cash or check or if I wanted to come back tomorrow. Cass had vouched for me and said I was okay to come back. The foreman said I had the rest of the week and if I could handle it, he would offer me a job. I told him to keep today's pay and I would return tomorrow. As I walked out of his office, a man approached me. His name was Rafa. I hadn't recognized him immediately, but he was one of the men that walked with Dan on his way to work when he fell, when he died, when I tried to save him but couldn't make him one of those 15 percenters. He thanked me. He just wanted to thank me. Nothing more or nothing less. I handed the bag over to him and asked him to take it to Dan's wife. He told me that he couldn't because he had another job to go to and it would take too much time. Besides, he hardly knew Dan's wife. He'd maybe pick him up to commute to work and back, but that was about it. He didn't even know Dan had a wife. But nevertheless, he offered to drop me off at Dan's on the way to his other job if I'd like to. I accepted the ride even though I'm not sure why. I mean, how did I expect to get back home? The ride to Dan's home was quiet. Rafa didn't have much to say, and so the only thing I could do was think about what I was going to say to Dan's wife. I could see myself opening the door and see her standing there. What would I say? I'm sorry to tell you, but Dan is gone. Would I use his name? Should I call her Mrs. Juarez? Would anyone even be home? 
Wouldn't she be at the hospital and not at home? It had been nine hours since the accident this morning. That's not right. It wasn't an accident. It was an incident. It happened the way it was supposed to, and I could see the flat line in the monitor in that hospital room. Everyone was unemotional because they had developed a stimulus shield against death, and their shields were impervious to emotion now. Rafa had to repeat himself to bring me back. We're here, he said again, and I exited the car. I stood outside of the house. It was further out than I would expect it to be, on the edge of the suburb, so that one block this way was houses, and one block that way were apartments spread out, and just a few more blocks were tightly packed high-rise apartments and the outskirts of the city, which was hallmarked by a gas station. Your last chance to fill up either to go into the city or to get out, passing no judgment. The house was an old small bungalow. It had seen better days, and I imagined that Dan was getting too old to maintain the property like he used to when he was younger, and he either had no children or they were old enough to have moved out to have wives and children of their own, and they probably lived too far to visit regularly and help with the maintenance of the house. This house had seen better days, much like Mr. Warren's. I stood outside for a long time, just taking it in. I had to tell her. I had to be the one to inform her of her husband's untimely or timely death. After all, he seemed older, but what did I know of age? Anyone bald or with gray hair seemed old enough to have a timely death, but that was all due to the ignorance of my youth, even though at times I felt that I was old enough to die. And I took a step because ultimately I knew all the looking over the cracks and decay of this house and trying to figure out what to say and trying to figure out whether his death was timely or untimely was for one reason. Escape. Escape behavior. Anything to avoid having to walk to the house, walk up the steps to the porch, and pull the screen door open and knock. But that is what I must do. So I took the steps up to the porch and pulled back the screen door and knocked. I let the screen door shut close and I stood back. It flung back suddenly, almost hitting me in the face. It startled me, and when it slammed shut, the screen mesh followed, waving. Two more repairs needing attention. And for a second, I thought that I might come back and do some repairs to this house. After all, the widow Mrs. Juarez would need the help, and maybe I would offer, depending on how the next five minutes went. No answer. Did I knock? And I thought about my escape behavior. I was reluctant to walk up the steps, and I was reluctant to knock on the door and inform the widow Mrs. Warris of her newly acquired widow status. Did I knock on the door? And the surrealism sank in because I did know the answer, and so I pulled open the screen door and knocked again, and when I let go of it, it closed much gentler this time, and I looked to see if the screen mesh would flap like a butterfly trying to fly away. It did not. It was secured tautly as it should be, and I hadn't had the time to fix it. I waited and still no answer. I did not know how much time had passed. Isn't that the way it always is when we wait? Waiting is something that we have not been conditioned to do. Delay and delay of gratification is even worse. Was it just a minute or several? I knocked again and no answer. And it made sense. Why would anyone be here when they would be at the hospital or congregated at someone's house commiserating at Mr. Warris's death? I took the bag and placed it at the doorstep. She would want it returned even though she no longer needed to reuse the aluminum foil. She could finally discard it, never having to use it again for a sandwich. And I thought about the thermos, and I would never be able to taste that amazing soup. And still I further thought about that note. She was sorry. What was she sorry about? Maybe they got into a fight and she was mad at him, and so she wanted to apologize but couldn't say the words, so she wrote them instead. Tell her for me. Please tell her for me. I looked at the eagle in the bag and opened it taking the napkin out. I'm sorry. I'm always sorry. I just hope you'll forgive me one more time. I love you, Dan. I always will, even when I forget that I do. Even when you forget that I do. 
I took a pen out of his bag and scrawled as best as I could. I love you. I placed the napkin in the mailbox, but I kept everything else. The thermos, the lunch bag, even the over-crinkled foil. It was the cost of helping out Mr. Juarez. Thank you.